You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world and give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting, hoping to make fresh soil from which new life might spring. We've had a bit of a break over the last few months, but we're back. Why the break? Combination of things, from logistical challenges to health disruptions. But it's my intention to resume semi-regular episodes once more, and before long, I'll also be announcing a related new project. More on that another day. In this episode, our ninth, we're talking Anthropocene. What is it? Is it a useful idea? And how might it illuminate the barrage of news headlines we face every day? So I'll be talking with Dr. Mick Pope about the climate crisis, intergenerational ethics, and some of the driving forces behind this disruption. Welcome, Mick. Thanks, Byron. We're recording today, as always, on Gadigal country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God, and for tens of thousands of years, the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under Indigenous leadership, that it may remain and become a home for us and for all God's creatures. Now, Mick, I'll mention a bit more about your academic background in a second, but do you want to share where you're from and acknowledge land that's significant to you? So I'm from Nam, which is the Boon word for Melbourne, but I'm actually a bit north of the CBD, so I'm in Wurundjeri country, part of the Kulin Nation. Uh, that's where I live, work and play, and I'd like to extend my respect to the elders of the Kulin Nation, past, present and emerging. You're up here visiting, doing a couple of podcasts. Uh, you've, you've just earlier today recorded uh, an episode with, or part of an episode with All Due Respect, um, one of the Bible Society podcasts and you're preaching a couple of times tomorrow and hanging out uh, because I've known Mick for a number of years and it's uh, my pleasure to introduce Dr. Mick Pope who has a PhD in meteorology from Monash and is completing a master's in theology at the University of Divinity. He's a lecturer in meteorology at the Bureau of Meteorology. That's right. Professor in environmental theology at Missional University and a member of the Center for Research in Religion and Public Policy. Mick's the author of three books on climate and faith. First, and this one was co-authored with Claire Dawson, is A Climate of Hope, Church and Mission in a Warming World. And that's, that's a book I often recommend when I give my talks in different places. An excellent introduction to those themes coming together in an Australian context. He then followed up a couple of years later with A Climate of Justice, Loving Your Neighbour in a Warming World. And then his most recent book, one we'll talk a bit more about at the end of this episode, is all Things New, God's Plan to Renew Our World. Now, as I said, I've known Mick for a couple of years, and what I'm trying to do here in Sydney, helping join the dots for Christians and churches between faith and caring for our common home, Mick is also doing down in Melbourne, except he does it better and has actual scientific credentials to back him up. And together, Mick and I help moderate a Facebook group called Australian Christian Environmental Group, which is pretty active and just shy of a thousand members. So if you haven't already checked that out and you're on Facebook, you might want to come along and have a look, sign up. Uh, Mick, uh, as we've said, lives in Melbourne and in his spare time likes to uh, beat people up. <laughs> That's a bit of an exaggeration. I have a black belt in the art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, I've actually written a couple of papers on the relationship between that and my Christian faith, but uh, yeah, it's, it occupies a fair bit of my time and helps me unwind after thinking about the end of the world <laughs> and those sorts of things. Uh, that's, uh, we probably should explore that. Maybe in another episode we can explore 
where jujitsu fits into this picture. But anyway, it's great to have you, and it's a delight to welcome you here on The Good Dirt. So Mick, a bit of a personal question to begin with. Tell me about how your family consumed the news when you were growing up. Was there a first moment when you remember hearing about a story happening or a, a historical event that first broke into your consciousness? So the newspaper my dad read was the Herald Sun. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in country Victoria, so that was that, that was the paper. We got the local paper as well. But because both my parents were English and we grew up in the country and it was back when I was a kid, it was either commercial TV station or the ABC. It was the ABC. Mm-hmm. So it was ABC News very much for me and British television and quality ABC documentaries that informed my view of the world. In terms of big things that stuck in my mind in the news, I was having a think this afternoon about this, and I think it was the Franklin River. Because it was, I mean, I know that's the 80s, and by then I was entering into my teens, but that was the first big, at least ecological, the really first big news item uh, that hit me that started to really prod my ecological consciousness. It was just such a, a long, protracted uh, event and you know, it was the, the song that was written and it was this huge protest thing and I already had a, a general sense of an attachment to nature because I grew up in the country and yeah. there's, there's all that so that that was kind of something I had a strong connection to yeah and perhaps for any of our younger viewers or uh, overseas viewers do you want to say a little bit more about what what was the Franklin so the, the Franklin is a, a beautiful pristine or relatively pristine river in Tasmania which as people might know is has some very wild and inaccessible regions, although there's talk about opening it up to uh, helicopters coming in and, and having this wilderness resort. But they wanted to dam it. So hydropower is one of those things I feel ambiguous about. It's a quote-unquote green source of energy, but maybe not so. Uh, and so they wanted to, to dam this river, and it was probably a watershed moment, if you'll pardon the pun, in Australian politics and environmental movement. I guess it comes after the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, but it was one of those things where... Yeah, early um, 1980s we're talking yeah, here. Yeah. Public sentiment was, was critical in changing government policy on this issue. And it's, I suppose, Bob Brown made a name for himself. Yep. In, in that, not saying he was doing that cynically, but, you know, it was something that he was very passionate about. Yeah, who later um, became a federal, first a Tasmanian, then a federal senator and founded the Australian Green Party, mm-hmm. uh, one of the first Greens parties anywhere in the world. And significant in the shifting of public sentiment was a sustained campaign of nonviolent direct action mm-hmm. with people blockading the construction of the dam. Uh, and that got a lot of media attention. There are hundreds of arrests and it, it shaped the political landscape in Australia in quite profound ways. Well, as always, we have three main segments in The Good Dirt. And the first is what's the big idea? Where we take a concept from history or politics, from theology or philosophy or some field that's useful for illuminating the news, for helping us join the dots, uh, make sense of the patterns, and see some of the underlying forces that are shaping our lives today. And some of the previous big ideas that we've explored, we've looked at the idea of common grace. Uh, with Scott Sanders in the second episode with Brooke Prentice, we looked at just world belief. And then with Lisa Sharon Harper, we talked about core spiritual lies. Uh, with Josh Doughton in episode four, we looked at the epistemic priority on the oppressed, listening to the weaker voice. With Dr. Miriam Pepper in episode five, we uh, looked at the Murray-Darling River Basin for that whole episode. With Ben Thurley in episode six, we talked about how change happens in society and particularly the concept of the Overton window. In episode seven with Jason John, 
the Reverend Doctor. We talked about identity protective cognition, a concept from psychology. Last episode, a few months ago, with Professor David Clough, we looked at humans and other animals. But today, with Dr. Mick Pope, our concept is the Anthropocene. So Mick, what is this Anthropocene and why does it matter? So the Anthropocene represents a new geological era in Earth history where human beings are the dominant factor of change. It's uh, an incredibly complicated and contested term, but let's go right back. Uh, it comes from a, a geochemist, Paul Crutzen, who observed the impact that human beings were having on the planet and decided that we needed a new name for a new era. So it's a primarily a geological term. And to give some people some kind of context, in geology, what they like to have is a sediment layer that is datable where they can proclaim it's a boundary between two geological eras. A classic one would be the end of the Cretaceous period, 66 million years ago, and you have this thin layer of iridium, which is a rare earth metal, which is found in high concentrations in meteorites. And as people might be aware, at the end of the Cretaceous period, the dinosaurs went extinct and the smoking gun is a massive hole in the ocean in the Yucatan Peninsula of uh, Central America. And so you've got a, a definitely dateable uh, transition between one geological period and another. Now, the problem with the Anthropocene is that we're right in the middle of it, so it makes it rather hard to define. And so what it represents then is a transition from what's known as the Holocene, which is about the past 11,000 years of a relatively stable climate. And to put that into context, it's the era in which civilizations have has developed. So cities, the world's major, major religions, trade, agriculture, writing, basically all the things that we take for granted. And the Anthropocene represents a major shift away from those conditions. So that we're now talking about an era where we might threaten not just individual civilizations, which has happened in the Holocene, you know, so the Maya, Mayan civilization collapsed due to drought in Central America, the Harappan culture in the Indus Valley, that society collapsed because of a change in the Indian monsoon. Those sorts of things have happened in history. But we're talking about a change in the planetary system such that the whole concept of civilization is under threat. And that's measured in the literature by nine planetary boundaries, which are defined as the kind of boundaries that have helped sustain human civilization. Now, everyone would be familiar with climate change. And so the, the primary, uh, if you like, measure in that is global mean temperature. So we're looking down the barrel of two degrees warming above pre-industrial level. Uh, but business as usual take us to four degrees and that's civilization threatening. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that people would might be familiar with and they all mostly tie into climate change. So there's ocean acidification, that's carbon dioxide that helps raise the temperature of the planet being absorbed in the oceans and making it hard for coral and other marine life to form their shells. You've got things like land clearing. So we're going from forested land to agricultural land of course that helps drive species extinction which is another planetary boundary but then you lose the ability for the soil to effectively capture carbon dioxide in, in soil carbon and so that feeds into climate change you've got things like the use of fertilizers which are, are all well and good to a degree when they're in agricultural fields but when they find their way into waterways it helps fertilize algal blooms, which can be toxic, but of course, when they die, that decay consumes oxygen. So there are rivers and lakes and estuaries that are basically devoid of life because of, of the overuse of fertilizers. We've seen some of the effects of that in the Darling River in uh, recent years, very sadly and 
and at times disastrously. Mm. And of course, uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers produce nitrous oxide as a byproduct, which again is a greenhouse gas. Another one, and, and then I'll stop at this point, <laughs> we can't alliterate all nine, is uh, human-produced long-lived chemicals, things like DDT, or indeed plastics, which are petrochemical. And so you can see how all these things kind of come together. Now, in order to understand that a little bit more, we need to go back and think about what are the other candidates and why, why would we prefer uh, this period known as the Great Acceleration, which is characterized by growth and GDP and energy use and all these other things. It has been suggested uh, Mark Maslin and Simon Lewis wrote a Nature article two, three years ago, and then have written a book, I think it's called The Human Planet. And they had five candidates. The first one was the Pleistocene extinctions, which was you know, when human beings left Africa, everywhere they go, the large mammals, the megafauna would go extinct. Uh, and if you said that that was the best way of defining the Anthropocene, then it's just part of being human. And it's kind of a stage we have to grow through, you know, like the, the moody teenager. I've got one of those at home. So you need to grow up through that. I suspect that idea falls apart in Australia now because mm. the longer that we work out Aboriginal people have been on the continent, the, the less the connection between the extinction of the megafauna and their arrival. So it's likely it falls down here. So that's not a good candidate for a couple of reasons. Then there's the origins of agriculture. And of course, why that's a problem? Well, it's not a problem in terms of feeding human beings, but then it's the land clearing. So you have a surplus of crops and so you can have more children. You can don't have to space the children out if you're a, compared to being a hunter-gatherer where you have to carry them. So you can have more children and so you grow more crops and you, you have more children, you need more crops to feed them. And so you consume more and more land. And certainly that's one of the drivers of the modern Anthropocene. And then you've got, and I think this is an important event in Earth history because it sets the logic forward and challenges the term Anthropocene. His next one is the so-called Columban Exchange. And that's when Europeans go to the Americas and you see a measurable dip in carbon dioxide concentration in 1610. And that's because disease and war and enslavement killed something of order 65 million people which is just a mind-bogglingly large figure. Yeah, incredible. So, you, you know, you, you watch these awful old cowboy and Indian movies and you see Indians on horseback, well, that the Europeans introduced the horses again, and you get this picture that they're hunter-gatherers. But large swathes of North America where they had agriculture. Yeah. So all that collapsed and went back to forest. Uh, and the reason I say that that's a worthwhile event to tie the beginnings of the Anthropocene is because it's the whole revolution, the origins of, of capitalism in Europe were funded by gold from Central and South America and the goods that moved back and forth across the Atlantic, including slaves. And it's all tied up in things like a change in the way in which Genesis 1 was understood, the dominion as domination, uh, Francis Bacon saying that knowledge was power, and that the closer you were to nature, the less human you were. So therefore, if you're either a woman or an indigenous person, and this is where we get terra nullius, the lands unoccupied. So it, it's the whole logic that we see continuing into the present day of things like carbon colonialism, think Adani, and this, the, um, what's the exact phrase, when native title is extinguished, or the uh, North Dakota pipeline in the United States. The, mm. the whole logic of capitalism begins there that you can just trample the earth and anyone who's close to it, i.e. indigenous people. Yeah, you also get the, a, a sharper divide between humans and other animals, which was one of the things we talked about on the previous episode with uh, Professor Clough. Yeah, I can imagine. 
And then it's, you know, it's a short step from there to the Industrial Revolution where you start producing more greenhouse gases. And then that kind of explodes in the, the boomer generation. So, so really, that all feeds into the idea that if it's not the Pleistocene extinctions and it's not really just the origins of agriculture, it seems that the best place to put it is beginning uh, with the period of quote-unquote discovery and the origins of, of capitalism, that really the term the capitalocene is probably something that's more appropriate. And yet, like most things, once the cat's out of the bag, as it were, we're kind of stuck with the term Anthropocene, so long as you nuance it in, in the ways in which I've, I've outlined. Right, so we've, we've really um, zoomed back from the daily headlines here to be looking on a scale of first tens of thousands and then thousands and then uh, hundreds and then at least decades. Mm. That there are, there are different moments in history where human influence on the planet really escalated with the, the sum total being such a profound influence on the living systems of the planet, on the atmosphere and oceans, on the, the whole water cycle, on the biosphere and every ecosystem that we're aware of, that everywhere we look we see human fingerprints, human mm. impacts, that we live, it's sometimes said, on a human planet, a planet where we are now the primary driving force, uh, shaping for good and for ill, the, the fortunes of all the creatures and processes that operate on the planet. And it's not saying that there aren't still profoundly powerful other forces, simply that we have unleashed something uh, that is changing evolutionary history and uh, changing geological history and will be visible for millions of years into the future in the geological record. Mm. And so why is this concept useful when we are approaching the news? How does this help us see the patterns in the stories that hit us every day? I think it gives you one strand of a grand narrative and it helps us situate ourselves in, in a much bigger picture, much bigger story. And, and on a couple of levels, I guess, I read an interesting book recently. It's called Timefulness and the subtitle is something along the lines of how thinking like a geologist will help us save the world. It's by a, a geology professor, Marcia Bjorn Rudd, I think it is. You can uh, have the right reference on the web page but she compares geological thinking uh, and geological time scale with that of for example the political cycle mm -hmm. uh, and what she shows is that we really do have a, a stunted way of thinking about time and i think the idea of the anthropocene that helps us understand that our very short-term thinking sits in a very long-term system to take it back a step you talked about geological processes like volcanoes and moving continents and changes in the earth's orbit and they operate on a long time scale uh, and then our decision making tends to be incredibly short term we're now experiencing geological processes or the equivalent geological processes happening on much shorter time scales so the climate's shifting really really rapidly now and we're about to reach tipping points so it's i guess it's thinking about how do the things that happen in the everyday connect to things that happen on the longer time scale and how those things are accelerating so does it really matter whether or not I book this overseas holiday or the choice of my meal now. And I don't want us to get nitpicky or pharisaic or whatever, but just to understand that the connections are very, very strong because there's seven plus billion of us making these decisions every day. Uh, and so when you see, for example, um, someone calling for you know, thoughts and prayers over the bushfires that are currently happening now in New South Wales and Southern Queensland, well, this is the direct result of, of climate change. So the everyday experience of people fighting fires or trying to save lives or their livelihoods going belly up are connected to 
you know, several thousand years of human action, but the past 50, 60 years of very rapid change. So it's it's a great connector. It's more of a like a grand narrative type thing. Yeah, and I think it, it can helpfully illuminate just the meaning of some of the changes that we see because you know none of us have been alive for more than a few decades and so our knowledge about the past always seems less real than the knowledge of our own lives and what has been a reality in the lives of all of us listening to this podcast and and for both of us is a period of profound change where things have changed incredibly rapidly compared to geological changes And, and so it's easy to lose that sense of scale. Uh, you know, one of the common responses that you get, one of the deflections that people make, you know, it's one of the patterns of identity protective cognition we talked about a couple of episodes ago with regards to climate disruption is to say, well, the climate's changed before, with, with the implication being, therefore, it's natural, therefore, it's probably natural this time, therefore, we don't need to worry about it because life has gone on previously. What that response obscures is the fact that it's, it's our knowledge of previous natural changes that highlights just how dangerous the current ones are. We know that the Earth climate system is vulnerable to pokes and prods. It can be pushed and pulled in different directions and the consequences for ecosystems around the planet are profound with even just a few degrees Celsius change. What's also missing in that response is that most of those previous changes happened over much longer timescales. So moving from the height of the last glaciation uh, at the height of the what's popularly called the Ice Age you know, 20,000 years ago, where you had ice a couple of kilometers thick over Chicago and Moscow and you know a lot of the Northern Hemisphere, the, the shift from that to the Holocene, where sea levels are 120 meters higher, where there's only about a third as much ice as there was during the height of the glaciation and the global ecosystems look very different, that change took roughly eight to 10,000 years to play out. That was a profound shift in the the global uh, ecosystem and relatively rapid in geological terms. And yet that scale of change was only maybe four, five degrees in terms of the average global temperature. And we're looking at a similar scale of change on business as usual, unfolding in the space of one human lifetime, a, a long human lifetime, maybe a century, but that that rate of change is 80 to 100 times as fast as one of the fastest geological processes that we're aware of. And that makes a real difference because impact isn't just the, the total magnitude of change, but it's the rate of change. And so I think that's another thing the Anthropocene can illuminate for us is that the, the scale of changes we are seeing ought not to be seen as mundane and everyday and just one of those things and well humans have always changed things but actually in damming the rivers and acidifying the oceans and cutting down the forests and ripping up the prairies and all the things that we do that is happening faster now than at any point we're aware of we're having the impact that in the geological record is is comparable only to major meteoroid uh, strikes but this time we're doing it consciously or at least we're aware that we are the cause of the change and we have the capacity to act differently so it may not illuminate this or that particular story but it gives us a backdrop to the whole picture of rapid planetary change there are many important political and social questions and many of those we discuss uh, on this podcast but the backdrop to all of them are these ecological and, and climatic changes It's not a trump card saying these are the only issues that matter. 
but it is saying this backdrop is profoundly different to all the other issues because this this affects not just human society and not just this year and not just one culture or place but the whole planet and as far into the future as we are able to imagine that the choices we make today play out in the lives of every future human that we can imagine. Now this idea of the Anthropocene also has its critics. Mick, you were alluding to some of these before, that uh, there are some people who say it hides the real culprits. So these are people who who are not questioning the scientific data, saying the planet is rapidly changing and are not questioning that it's human activities that are causing it, but they're, they're wondering if we're still being a bit too general because when it comes to the impact that we're having, not all of us are anything like equal. If we look just at climate altering carbon emissions, for instance, something like 7% of the global population emits 50% of the emissions, while 50% of the global population emits about 7%. So that means it's, it's not all humans who are modifying the planet. It's particularly wealthier humans uh, with higher levels of consumption. But even then, for most of us, we are responding to systems that are bigger than us, systems that are driven by vast amounts of money, systems that shape our politics and the priorities of our political systems, systems that employ millions of people, systems centered around vast accumulations of wealth in the hands of the few. And so, as you alluded to before, some suggest that rather than naming this period the Anthropocene, from Anthropos, the Greek word for human, perhaps we should call it, somewhat cumbersomely, the Capitalocene, saying that it's actually these vast accumulations of money, of wealth in the hands of the few, that are what's really profoundly shaping the planet and shaping the experience of all of us on it. It becomes difficult once the cat's out of the bag, you're kind of stuck with terms and it's worth letting listeners know that Anthropocene is not a, a term that's yet been ratified by, and I always forget the acronym, but the body that's responsible for defining geological ages. So we're talking about a term that's used in a variety of fields, the ecological humanities, the environmental humanities, in ecotheology, in geology in a in precise fashion, etc., uh, etc. Et so I guess at one level we're stuck with it, another we're free to debate it. I think it is a fair point to say that it is a particular system of thought. It is capitalism, although communist countries have happily adopted and do adopt the same kind of patterns of behavior mirroring it in a way that's equally destructive. There is that logic that we talked about earlier. There's the logic of commodification. There's the logic of domination, uh, of control. I, I guess I'm giving qualified agreement. I just agree that it's rather cumbersome. And so you need to nuance your discussion that once we're talking about the Anthropocene, what we particularly mean are the more recent changes and the logic behind it. Uh, so it's the nature culture dualism. It's also the understanding that the natural world is infinitely forgiving. So we know that you can't dump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere forever and a day and not raise the temperature. You can't dump pollution and waste and whatever else into the oceans forever. So I get, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, but it's like, am I going to use that term explicitly? Probably not. What that thinking does help, though, is that if you just purely talked about the Anthropocene, it will be about saying, as George Monbiot, is buying the lie that consumers are the primary problem, uh, part of the problem, and then therefore saying that you'd be a responsible consumer, like we get the whole rubbish about being a responsible gambler. 
well, that's not gambling at all, right? So you get, get that narrative's fed to you. Whereas if you, you go harder at the capitalist type narrative, it's, well, you go for these uh, primary and secondary boycotts, which have made the news of late as being somewhat problematic because we do have to change the system. Do you have a pet peeve about the news media? Something that bugs you, something you think they just keep on getting wrong or keep on admitting, something that gets under your skin? Well, there would be two. And the first one is a meteorologist when they talk about a mini tornado. They're already small scale. There are no such thing as mini tornadoes. There are just tornadoes. I long ago gave up writing to the ABC online and saying, no, this is wrong. Uh, I suppose, and I don't know how much this is done because I don't watch a lot of climate change reporting, is the quote unquote, the balance idea. And this happens in a whole bunch of other fields too, I think. It's the, the problematic kind of issue of censorship and free speech and the value thereof and what voice do you give to the minority and it would be fair to say for example in climate change science community that actual climate change scientists or meteorologists who deny that climate change is real humans are responsible and it's going to be really bad if we do nothing is a very small minority and the sorts of people who get dragged in constantly in these debates are either that very small minority or mining geologists or shock jocks or whatever else and give a false sense of the balance and the level of debate uh, and that's been hugely problematic in the united states and i think it's really tipped public opinion here probably less so but still a problem that's right if you really want to be hearing both sides of the scientific debate when it comes to climate science you should have on the one side those who think that our present trajectory of disrupting the global climate is going to lead us into disaster uh, and on the other side those who think it's going to lead us into catastrophe that's a better reflection of the balance that we ought to be hearing both sides on if we want to be exploring the actual details of the ongoing debates about the impacts in uh, coming decades and centuries from our uh, interruption of the, the, the climate system. We come to our second segment, What's Going On? And in this segment, we take some stories that have been in the news headlines in the last few days or weeks or months, and Try to pick ones that are important, but might not have got the attention they deserved. Things that might not have been on the front page, but which relate to the underlying forces that are shaping the lives of millions of people around the world. And Mick, would you like to introduce the first story that we picked tonight? So the story that I want to talk about, I think has received some attention, but I suspect somewhat problematic attention I'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm reading from the Guardian article. Uh, it's about the declaration. The title for the Guardian article is Climate Crisis, 11,000 Scientists Warn of Untold Suffering. And this so there's been Damien Carrington and published on the 6th of November. Yes, my bad. That's the, the date. So the statement was published in the journal Bioscience, and it's on the 40th anniversary of the First World Climate Conference which was held in Geneva in 1979. Now, I think this is important other than the fact that I was 10 then, and I'm now 50, so I've seen four decades of nothing much happening. This boggles my mind, 1979. We, we need to understand that, in fact, climate change science goes back at least 150 years when they showed that greenhouse gases contributed to the temperature of the planet, and then 100 odd years to uh, Arrhenius did calculations, which are pretty much consistent you know, within a ballpark of, of modern predictions about doubling CO2 concentrations and so temperature rise. That, that human emissions can alter the global climate. Yeah. Having first recognised that certain trace gases trap 
outgoing radiation that's the basis of the greenhouse effect that's been known for 150 years that's right for 100 years we've had good reason to suspect that human activities could actually alter that system and it was quite an involved calculation and he he captured the water vapor feedback in that which is that the warmer the planet gets the more water you evaporate into the atmosphere which itself is a greenhouse gas but only gets there by releasing fossil fuels in the first uh, burning fossil fuels in the first place that does that but my point is then is that there's just been such this long understanding of what's gone wrong and we've just dragged uh, our feet and and the thing about this this report is that really it's just a statement a restatement a summary of everything that's been said before but it's just got 11,000 names attached to it to quote again from the article uh, from Thomas Newsom of the University of Sydney, a broader set of indicators should be monitored, including human population growth, meat consumption, tree cover loss, energy consumption, fossil fuel subsidies, and annual economic losses to extreme weather events. So they're really trying to move just beyond uh, the temperature as a measure or the greenhouse gas concentrations, the emissions as a measure, because it's such a complicated system. Now, it really is worth stating though that there are probably not 11,000 climate scientists around the planet. And yes, it has been pointed out in social media that one of the signatories to this declaration is Mickey Mouse. So when these things happen, you get people wanting to pull your leg, having a bit of a laugh. But the fact that this is 11,000 people and a core of climate scientists who actually understand the science and do this every day should tell you that this is significant and it's simply reiterating what we already know and it's just people saying this is serious will you listen to us and i should say also the fact that there's climate scientists have signed on to this means that it's not on the same level as statements that say climate change isn't true uh, there was a, a few years ago a body of quote-unquote scientists who signed a declaration saying it wasn't and it turned out the vast majority of those were doctors medical doctors so this is not an astroturf, it's not a, a beat-up, but it does have a few hangers-on. What do you think is the actual significance of this story? You know, we can trade one set of signatories for another set of signatories, and, you know, who's better at organising large numbers of people to say they agree with one thing or another? What's the real meat of the story here? Having written three papers in climate science, not climate change specifically but still having written scientific papers there's a fairly sober style to them and if you read uh, papers on human caused climate change you will find that they largely follow that sober kind of style so when you think about the people who write these things and consider them to be human beings as well they're not typically alarmist people but they're very alarmed by the work that they're doing when 11,000 scientists take a you know give or take a few say that untold suffering is in the pipeline then we need to take that seriously because these are people who are saying you need to listen to us you might not go and read the ipcc reports you might not dig into any of these technical journals and and look at the details but you need to listen to us now because we're speaking to you as fellow human beings that this is serious and we really need to do something we really need to do something rapidly as i said you know this meeting in geneva was in 1979 40 years of scientists doing good research and the science improving all the time and the story's not getting better it's getting worse so as you said the scientific content of this statement isn't anything radically new correct but it represents increasing alarm amongst the community most in touch with the research on which this whole discussion is based that they are increasingly willing to as human beings break out of the scientific reticence 
to to comment further on their research beyond letting the research speak for itself and are really wanting to double down on saying this is crucially important to all of us. Our next story is a long read in The Guardian and it, it runs to a few thousand words and the title is Bad Ancestors Does the Climate Crisis Violate the Rights of Those Yet to Be Born? It's by Astra Taylor written uh, published on the 1st of October and Mick what is the thrust of the argument here and why did it strike you as a story? Well it kind of brings together things I've been reading of late we talked about a clash of timescales the geological timescale with the human timescale or that book Timefulness by Marcia Bjornerud and so I was just really struck by the fact that again it's it's demonstrating that our thinking is so often inadequate uh, we think on the very short term, we think about our own personal comfort in the short term. Politicians think about the next election cycle and being re-elected. And we lose sight of the fact that we're living in an unsustainable fashion and the world that we're handing on to our children will be much uh, poorer and much riskier uh, and much less stable than the world that we've embraced. So I was particularly moved because it captures the words of Greta Thunberg uh, when she spoke to the UN She's challenging directly in her typically blunt style the fairy tales of eternal economic growth, the very uh, way of life that's totally unsustainable and it's just focused on the present, where she says, young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say, we will never forgive you. And so it's adding an ethical bite to our understanding of how time works because as I say, we're passing on uh, a way of life that they won't be able to enjoy, any form of life that they'll be able to in, enjoy. And it's just a real perspective change. So this is a quote that really uh, stands out to me. It talks about the question of intergenerational responsibilities and ethical duties across decades and centuries. So stretching our imagination. To put it another way, what is the relationship of democracy to time? This question may seem abstract, but it's actually foundational. We are all born into a world that we did not make subject to customs and conditions established by prior generations, and then we leave a legacy for others to inherit. The project of self-government invariably requires navigating the tension between short and long-term thinking, our immediate circumstances, and what is to come, the present and the future. Nothing illustrates this more profoundly than the problem of the climate crisis, which calls into question the very future of a habitable planet. Yeah, so we've been talking about the Anthropocene as a time scale, uh, you know, looking at geological eras and noting that uh, the news operates on a 24-hour uh, news cycle where headlines get churned over and by next week it's largely forgotten. Uh, and that one of the purposes of this podcast is to, to pick up some of those discarded headlines that we probably shouldn't have discarded quite so quickly. Disrupting the global climate it sits in that dangerous position that is too far away to demand our attention today but close enough to not be able to be put off. And our systems are not designed for this. Our political systems, our economic systems, as you say, are designed on shorter cycles with shorter attention spans and shorter horizons. You know, there are ancient traditional wisdom and wisdom found in many indigenous cultures that does demand a longer time scale and, and prudence exercised over multiple generations. But that's not the pace, that's not the horizon of imagination for most of us today. And so the intergenerational injustice in disrupting the global climate is very much a question of the relationship of us to our children. 
That is, it's a relationship over decades where each generation faces the same temptation to continue burning the future, to continue enjoying cheap energy from squandering the geologically ancient um, fossil carbon that we can dig up and get easy energy from. But at the cost of those who come after us, the full consequences of doing that combustion play out over decades and centuries. They don't immediately appear. We don't immediately feel the cost of burning another ton of coal, uh, digging up another barrel of oil. It can be deferred. But the momentum in the climate system means that once that carbon is emitted, once it has been ripped out of the slow carbon cycle where it was in a geologically stable location, uh, safely underground, and it gets inserted into the global atmosphere and oceans, the consequences of adding that carbon only become manifest over decades. So there's this, this temptation to have it now and make those who come after pay for it. And, and that is the bargain that with increasing consciousness of what we are doing, we are collectively doing. That we are choosing to burn the future, to burn our children's future for the sake of more convenience today. Or to put it more pointedly, for the sake of the profits of the already very wealthy today. This is at the heart of the intergenerational injustice of climate change. The Secretary of State in the United States was Rex Tillerson, the CEO of Exxon, and they've been shown to have lied about climate change for 30 odd years. And there's a quote in the this Long Guardian article that says, it's an engineering problem and there will be an engineering solution. That's a trajectory back to Bacon, I think. It's that knowledge is power and we have the ability and the right to dominate the planet for whatever else. It is, and it will respond in a very linear fashion. But we know now that the Earth system doesn't respond in a linear fashion at all. We're about to cross a bunch of tipping points. So again, it comes back to a fundamental worldview. Yeah, and there's a basic failure of logic there that just ignores entropy. I can say, it's within my power to scramble an egg. Therefore, it's going to be within my power to unscramble an egg. And we all know that's not the case. It's easier to cause chaos than to put the egg back in its shell. And the same with climate. It's far easier to uh, extract and combust and emit a ton of carbon uh, into the atmosphere than it is to get that, put that genie back in the bottle. Our next story is titled Bank of England Boss says global finance is funding four degrees Celsius temperature rise by Richard Partington. It begins, the governor of the Bank of England has warned that the global financial system is backing carbon producing products that will raise the temperature of the planet by over four degrees Celsius, more than double the pledge to limit increases to well below two degrees contained in the Paris Agreement. In a stark warning over global heating, Mark Kearney said the multi-trillion dollar international capital markets, where companies raise funds by selling shares and bonds to investors, are financing activities that would lift global temperatures to more than four degrees above pre-industrial levels. World leaders agreed in the Paris Climate Accords to keep the temperature rise this century well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit the rise to 1.5. Now these are numbers that get thrown around a lot, Mick. Can you briefly take us through what's the difference between 1.5 or two or four why do these different numbers matter? Because for a lot of us, it can feel like, you know, a 22 degree day versus a 24 degree day, not a radical difference. One of the things we need to remember is that if you think about, say, what are we, we're in November here in Sydney, that if you talk about the average temperature value for that month, there's a distribution 
of temperature. So you have the really cool days for that month and the really warm days. We talk about the, t- the global climate shifting by one and a half degrees or two degrees, you're seeing a shift of the extremes that's much larger. So it's, you people might be familiar with uh, Einstein's statement, God does not play dice. Well, human beings are playing dice with the planet and the warmer the mean temperature, the more you're loading the dice towards the catastrophic events. So you'll get larger amounts of sea level rise. You'll get more parts of the globe, which will be exposed to water shortages. You'll melt more glaciers, which will contribute to those water shortages. You'll increase the severity of, of fire outbreaks and so on. So I, I don't have a lot of figures in the top of my head, but it, it's... You know, you're pushing a system closer and closer to, to tipping points, which we don't know precisely where they are, but all of a sudden a system like Antarctic ice sheets or the Amazon goes, you know, like that uh, at a certain threshold. So, and, and I think the other thing we need to remember is that we're almost pretty much about one degree Celsius already, that we're already experiencing profound changes in, in a number of aspects of the Earth and climate system from one degree. So you add it up, you, know, you double that, uh, you do more than double the severity. It doesn't work in a simple linear fashion. Yeah, sometimes it gets compared to uh, the temperature in your body, which fluctuates a little bit around a, a fairly stable average, but it only takes a few degrees away from that average to have start to have some pretty profound effects on your health mm. and only a few degrees more before your life is at stake. The, the numbers involved here can seem quite modest. The impacts are not. The difference between a two-degree world and a four-degree world is civilization, according to Hans Jochen Schellenhuber, who's one of the most senior climate researchers in Germany. Um, that's his summary of the difference between two degrees and four degrees, that two degrees is disaster, but four degrees is catastrophe. And so this story here, the Bank of England boss, who is uh, Mark uh, Carney, um, you know, this is no radical communist here. This is a, a, a man who has spent his life in the global financial markets and uh, a real uh, servant of the capitalist order. Uh, he is pointing out that those markets are acting as though we are going to continue doing behaviors that will lead us towards a four degree world. So the markets are funding activities by fossil fuel companies on a scale and at a pace that will continue us on a trajectory towards four degrees of warming by 2100 with more warming in the centuries to follow. Because of course, warming doesn't just suddenly magically stop at 2100, things can keep getting worse from there. Uh, but even four degrees of warming, as uh, Schellenhuber uh, says, uh, you, you know, will have radical impacts on every living human being on the planet, disrupting the lives of uh, hundreds of, displacing hundreds of millions of people and disrupting the lives of billions of people, um, shortening the lives of untold numbers of people and probably pushing most natural and human systems well beyond their ability to adapt. If people want to get a a visual representation of the differences between the various scenarios, uh, several years ago, Mark Linus wrote a book, Six Degrees, and there are all the videos of half degree, one, two, three, four, six, from the series, uh, National Geographic series, are actually available on YouTube. You actually get, you know, at, at uh, four degrees, uh, Venice is under the water and the Ganges disappears at both ends because you get saltwater intrusion from sea level rise at one end of it and the melting of the glaciers in the Himalaya so you don't get the summertime melt fresh water. So there's a, a river that 
provides billion not billions but millions of people their fresh water and uh, that's going to dry up that's going to disappear at both ends so it gives you a nice kind of comparison not a nice comparison you know what i mean uh, a, a useful comparison between the different scenarios and so what does it mean that we have global markets which is which is really a rarefication it's a uh, a shorthand um, when we say markets they, they aren't this automatic thing a market is a collection of people the, the collective behavior uh, of many people coming together to buy and sell uh, to trade shares in this case um, and of course those who have the most money uh, have the most ability to do that trading um, and given the extreme level of inequality in the world these markets do get dominated by a relatively small number of very major players in this game so often when I read news articles that have the word markets I just mentally do a little replacement saying the very very rich um, the preferences of the rich and the very very rich what does it mean that markets the rich and especially the very very rich are acting as though it is profitable and normal and acceptable to continue on a trajectory towards four degrees it's saying they operate under a worldview that either shields them in a cognitive fashion from the implications of the decisions that they make or they simply don't care so it's either immoral or amoral you, you choose for the theologically aware walter wink as a theologian he talked about the powers and it's this idea that angels and demons he doesn't think they're independent beings but they express the spirituality of a system and and what it's saying to me is quite frankly that the the market quote unquote is demonic uh, it's destructive it doesn't really care about human welfare it doesn't care about the the welfare of the planet as a system it's simply interested in its own perpetuation which is as you say you know making money an abstract concept in the first place uh, that only makes sense inside certain uh, systems of thought for its own sake and making it for the for the benefit of a, a privileged few who just believe that's the way the world works and we know that the anthropocene is telling us that's not the way the world works the only place that i'm aware of where where resources are accumulated uh, endlessly in one concentrated arena is of course of cancer mm. uh, and that's ultimately destructive so it just it, it says that people are either in a bubble of their own making or they simply don't care yeah there's that old joke isn't that the only the only things that believe in endless growth are economists and cancer cells mm. this story this system that puts money at the heart of society as the organizing principle for how we make our decisions in business and in politics that we put profit first uh, you're saying that this is a demonic story that it is idolatrous that it is either immoral or amoral that it is a story that is literally killing us where we are sacrificing our children as we were just saying sacrificing the well-being and stability and livelihoods of those who come after us for the sake of the profits of the very few today that was the kind of practice that the authors of scripture condemned in their neighbors uh, where they saw rituals that involved the literal sacrifice of children in order to ensure the prosperity of the next agricultural harvest and here we have a whole system where we are sacrificing children sacrificing the well-being and the possibility of those who come after us living full and flourishing lives sacrificing that on for the sake of trying to guarantee the short-term profits um, and convenience of those who enjoy the status quo the most 
It's rather chilling, isn't it? While you were speaking, I was thinking about rationing during World War II, where people were willing to make sacrifices so that they could fight for the future of civilization itself, and certainly for the future of their children, whereas we're doing it in reverse right now. Our next story is titled, Scott Morrison slams environmental groups targeting businesses with selfish secondary boycotts. Recently, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave a major speech to the Queensland Resources Council, that's the highest lobbying body of the mining industry in Queensland, where he argued that so-called secondary boycotts can have serious consequences for the Australian economy and they need to be banned. Now, secondary boycotts are already illegal in Australia, but there's an exception that is made for boycotts based on environmental or consumer protections. Now, what's a secondary boycott? It's where you engage in a boycott, the withholding of economic activity, the, the you know refusing to buy from a particular company or organisation in order to exert pressure on them. But rather than doing that with the company who is doing the most problematic thing, you boycott other companies who are trading with that primary company. So if the Adani company, for instance, uh, is wanting to build a enormous mega mine in Queensland and open up a whole new coal basin that will have combined emissions larger than Australia and larger than most nations, um, to pick a hypothetical example, a boycott of the Adani company is very difficult for ordinary Australians because Adani don't do much trading in Australia. But there are many Australian organisations who work with Adani and uh, who are contractors that Adani needs to employ in order to get the work done, in order to build the mine. And some of those companies, Australians might be able to boycott in order to exert pressure on them not to trade with Adani so that Adani isn't able to go ahead with the mine. That's the idea behind a secondary boycott. And this is the boycott that Prime Minister Morrison principally has in mind, I think, because it has been so successful with something like 60-odd Australian companies who have withdrawn their services from uh, working with Adani as one after another, they have been pressured by a secondary boycott and the threat of bad publicity that goes with it into not engaging in business with this Indian mega company. Now, Scott Morrison's speech really emphasized what, what he saw as the economic dangers of secondary boycotts. Speaking as he was to the mining lobby, what he really meant was, these secondary boycotts are actually being effective in thwarting the intentions of a massive coal company to increase its profits. And so if we were just saying that putting the profits of the few ahead of the well-being of the many is a grievous evil, a major intergenerational injustice, then secondary boycotts are actually achieving something very important. They're achieving a great good. But for Prime Minister Morrison, they are holding back something that he sees as even more important, namely the profits of those few companies. What's your response to Prime Minister Morrison's suggested banning of secondary boycotts for environmental concerns? There's a terrible inversion in logic, is there not, to claim that somebody who wants a safe and sustainable environment, climate, and for their children and their children's children, etc., is being selfish. I mean, I have to chuckle at this sentence 
Together with the Attorney General, we are working to identify mechanisms that can successfully outlaw these indulgent and selfish practices that threaten the livelihoods of fellow Australians, especially in rural and regional areas, especially here in Queensland. What does he mean, the go-ahead of a coal mine that's going to take huge amounts of water away from agriculture? So when he's saying fellow Australians, who precisely does he mean? doesn't mean Adani, he's an Indian. I'm not targeting Indians, but he's not fellow Australian. They talk about the small number of fly-in, fly-out contractors are going to help maintain the mine, or the small number of jobs that are going to be generated when the mine's constructed. So I'm struggling to see the truth precisely, or how he defines truth in that claim, but also struggling to see how this is indulgent and selfish when we know that if we invested heavily in renewables that there would be far more jobs than mining coal is going to generate. So yeah, I'm a little bit baffled by the statements. Yes, and particularly attribution of in- indulgence and selfishness to activists, many of whom are doing it voluntarily and, and actually at great cost to themselves in order to seek to secure a better future. Labeling that indulgent or selfish seems slanderous to me. But there's a, there's a feature of this uh, speech that I found interesting, and um, it, was, it was a connection that a friend of mine, Matt Anslow, first pointed out. And in the rush of commentary on the speech, I think I haven't seen this picked up on in the various media articles about it. Back in 2008, when Scott Morrison first entered Parliament and made his maiden parliamentary speech, which is often the agenda-setting moment for politicians where they announce their values and their priorities and their their goals for their time in office. Morrison, in that speech, praised Archbishop Desmond Tutu as an exemplary figure whose understanding of faith in public life informed his own. Now, Tutu was the South African bishop who became famous for helping to lead the nonviolent resistance to the racist injustices of apartheid during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And Morrison shared this quote from Tutu as an expression of Morrison's own priorities as a public Christian. Quote, We expect Christians to be those who stand up for the truth, to stand up for justice, to stand on the side of the poor and the hungry, the homeless and the naked. And when that happens, then Christians will be trustworthy, believable witnesses. Specifically, Morrison praised the bishop for standing, quote, for the immutable truths and principles of the Christian faith, end quote a process Morrison described with reference to Abraham Lincoln's quote that we ought to be most concerned not whether God is on our side, but to pray earnestly that we are on his. Thus Morrison's speech acknowledges the potential that each of us, including Christian believers, may find ourselves opposed to the purposes and work of God, only avoiding such an outcome through earnest prayer and an attentiveness to the heart of the Christian message in order to stay connected to the values of loving kindness, justice and righteousness to act with compassion and kindness, acknowledging our common humanity, and to consider the welfare of others, ending there with a quote from the maiden speech. Now, when Bishop Tutu joined the global fossil fuel divestment movement five years ago, he explicitly encouraged secondary boycotts. And he said, people of conscience need to break their ties with corporations financing the injustice of climate change. We can, for instance, boycott events, sports teams, and media programming sponsored by fossil fuel energy companies. He's describing there a secondary boycott. And Tutu linked this movement, the fossil fuel divestment movement, to the anti-apartheid movement that had also embraced boycott, divestment, and sanctions in the struggle for racial justice, and including secondary boycotts there. Another quote, during the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, using boycotts, divestment, and sanctions, and supported by our friends overseas, we were not only able to apply economic pressure on the unjust state, 
but also serious moral pressure, end quote. Now, this might just be an interesting historical footnote where Morrison has come to a different conclusion to one of his spiritual and political heroes, but it's the reasons for the difference that I think are most telling and that I think actually raise questions about Morrison's acknowledgement that it's possible for believers to find themselves opposed to God's purposes and priorities. Because for Bishop Tutu, boycotts, divestment and sanctions were and are a form of non-violent resistance to grievous injustice. They're an expression of his Christian faith in a God who brings transformation through persuasion, witness to the truth, solidarity with the poor, rather than through the barrel of a gun. Tutu sees this as being a stark moral choice between the profits of the rich or the well-being of people and planet. Quote, we live in a world dominated by greed. We have allowed the interests of capital, that is, of the very wealthy, to outweigh the interests of human beings and our earth. End quote. In contrast, Morrison's anti-boycott speech to the mining lobby in Queensland focused heavily on the impact of boycotts on corporate profits. In effect, Morrison was expressing concern that the freedom of the already wealthy to make more wealth from ecologically damaging practices might be infringed by campaigns that seek to put pressure on corporations by tarnishing their public image with truthful accounts of their greed and mendacity. That's what freedom means in this context when he speaks of freedom. It's the freedom of a corrupt Indian mining company with an awful environmental, social and labor track record, as we've discussed in previous episodes, their freedom to wreck rare ecosystems, to draw down precious water aquifers, to trample Aboriginal land rights, to worsen deadly air pollution, and to expedite the destabilization of the global climate for the sake of the profits of one of the world's wealthiest men and a handful of others around him. So both Morrison and Bishop Tutu claim to follow Jesus, who famously said, no slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Prime Minister Morrison's reasoning in his speech to the Queensland Mining Lobby represents one path. Bishop Tutu calls us to the other. Morrison's maiden speech reminds us that repentance, changing our mind, is possible. Our third segment is what do we do? We don't want to just be watching the news or even understanding the news. We don't just want to be analysts sitting back bemoaning the state of the world. We want to work out how can we be more fully human? How can we be more engaged in caring for our neighbours, including the neighbours in future generations and neighbours around the world and neighbours who may not even be human? And so in this segment, we try to think of three responses to some of the themes and stories and issues that we've been raising. First, an immediate action that we can take today. Second, some way of expanding our mind, our understanding, our connection with these issues, something to read or listen to. Um, and then third, a more ambitious life commitment towards justice and peace. So an immediate action that you can do today is to make sure that if, if you are on social media, that you are following groups that are actively involved in seeking to stop the spread of the fossil fuel industry here in Australia or overseas. Whether these are the major campaign organizations, whether they're groups who run the secondary boycott campaigns like market forces, or whether they're groups who are involved in some of the direct action, the nonviolent attempts to directly prevent the mining industry from being able to do its business 
It's important to follow these groups, not just in order to be able to maximize their impact and spread their work and raise attention and be aware of when there might be opportunities for participating in campaigns or learning about how to take slightly more ambitious actions than just signing another petition. But it's also important when things do go down, when uh, some of these events happen and they may not get covered by the mainstream media in ways that are sympathetic. They might not get covered in ways that give the full picture of what happened. It's important to be hearing directly from some of those involved as to the context and the content of, of what really happened, because it's very easy for some of the powerful voices, the politicians, the corporations, uh, the police and the system that is built around the markets, around the interests of the most wealthy, it's very easy for them to get their voice out and heard. Uh, it's important to be listening to the voices of those who are actually representing the interests of the vast majority of us in seeking to ensure a more habitable planet. So go and follow some of these groups. A couple to recommend, as I said, would be Market Forces, but also Extinction Rebellion uh, Australia or uh, Frontline Action on Coal. Are there any that you'd like to recommend people follow? Uh, there'd be Stop Adani would be the other one. Yep, that's a very good one. Wh whichever one it is and whichever angle that you find most illuminating and inspiring, but find groups to be part of. I've, we've made this point before, but I'm going to make it again. Just as an immediate action, having some of these groups present in your feed and in your attention, uh, I think opens up more possibilities for, for thinking and acting further on these things. As far as a, a recommendation for how we might expand our mind and grow our understanding of these topics, the obvious text to recommend at the moment is Mick Pope's new book, which is All Things New, God's Plan to Renew Our World. Not a brand spanking new book, but new-ish book. Um, and Mick, tell us a bit about this book. What is it about and how is it gonna help us understand life in the Anthropocene? So, well, there's very much a chapter aimed at, at explicating the basic science but i wrote this primarily for a christian audience although i have uh, people who outside of the church who have read it and what it's meant to do is try and explain a the particularly the book of revelation it's the last book in the the christian bible that sounds like it's supporting a view of put your feet up god's going to trash the planet and you know renew it and all christianity is about getting to heaven when you die and we don't need to stress about these issues whereas it's very much a first century theological poetic political pastoral and prophetic text that mm -hmm. says how do you live under the shadow of empire how do you live faithfully as a christian person under the shadow of coercive power and it doesn't have a lot of buy in the west in western christianity because we don't know what it means to truly suffer but it should have a lot of buy in the west because we understand what it means to for want of a better expression, buddy up with power, to be in mm. bed with power. And so there's, I think it's in chapter 18, where it says, come out of her to the church, come out of Babylon, uh, which is code for Rome, because the empire of Rome has been generating wealth for the privileged few and trashing the planet in the process. So it's, it's a really relevant text, I think, for the 21st century. The theme from the title is, all things new, God's plan to renew our world is really that message that Revelation sells is that the biblical story, the entire of the narrative from creation to new creation is about God making all things new to create a world of peace and justice. And the whole act of becoming a Christian is being becoming part of this great grand plan that God has, not an individual relationship with God on its own, isolated from social political problems problems of peace and justice. That there's this big thing going on and it's an invitation to become part of that. 
Excellent. So if we've been talking a lot in this episode about some of the big stories of capitalism and, and the world systems built around money uh, and, and around expanding the power of those who are already powerful, in order to resist and uh, critique and, and eventually dismantle and replace that system, we need other stories. Yep. For the two of us as Christian believers, we think one of the best candidates for a replacement story is the fashioning of new narratives from from those old, old texts, uh, the very subversive, at, at times uh, rebellious texts of the New Testament uh, where people were living under the powers, under, under imperial Rome, um, and needed to find ways of resisting and subverting and uh, shifting the narratives that we all live by. Our third suggestion for a more ambitious life commitment towards justice is to actually join one of the groups that we talked about before. So the simple thing you can do today is to follow groups on social media. The more ambitious thing is to actually join groups, whether that's the groups we mentioned before, uh, Christian groups like Common Grace, or just a local group that you are aware of in your, your immediate context, but to be joining together with others. Modern life can be so atomizing and individualizing and the, the, some of the dominant stories that we get in advertising and the media teaches us just to look to ourselves and to think of ourselves as individual isolated consumers. It's so important that we connect up with others, that we're part of things bigger than ourselves. That brings us to the end of our episode. This is the bit where the music comes back in and you start to fumble for the controls to your phone or device and where I tell you to share, comment, subscribe and do the things that make this little community grow. Thank you, Mick. It's great to have you up here with us and I'm looking forward to hearing you preach tomorrow at Paddington Anglican. How can people find you online? I'm pretty easily Googleable, but I also have a Facebook page. It's called The Climate of Hope, The Writings of Mick Pope. And thanks, listener, for sticking with this little podcast experiment, one in which we're continuing to dig into realities that stink and are sometimes, frankly, repulsive. Composting teaches us that what seems least pleasant can be the best place to see fresh ground being made. So let's get our hands dirty, and perhaps we'll see new shoots of growth amidst the muck. Our producer is Simon Bunstead. Our music is by Francis Preve. I'm Byron Smith, and this is The Good Dirt.